Starting with Mr. Lynn. Say a few things about what you already said, uh, just to clarify. Just, just, just one more thing. Okay, go ahead. You, 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 to, you know, you, you say that uh, they relate, you know, homosexuality to race, and the way that they do that is mm -hmm. they say, "Well, a homosexual is um, um, that's who I am," and um, so you know, it's the same as being a black person. You know, that's who they are. You know, they're, they're black. I can't help who I am. I'm homosexual. Mm -hmm. So you're persecuting me because of who I am. Right. But that's not, but, but, but I think you have to be very careful here because actually the first person I ever met who was a director of Wesley Foundation was Bill Stokes. Mm -hmm. he, was, he was extremely effeminate. Mm -hmm. I've heard that. And, um, uh, you know, problems with that sure you know um it's it, you know and i think i think it's i i think it's fine you know i i think that uh, I, I have no condemnation for anybody who has homosexual urges sure no problem with people you know just like i don't have any problem with people having heterosexual urges mm -hmm. outside the bonds of marriage sure you know more said about heterosexual you know, immorality sure. than there is about homosexual. Mm -hmm. So it's not, it's not who you are. It's a problem. It's a practice. 
You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. If you can't, if you're if you're a slave to your urges, then you know we shouldn't have any laws about uh, sexual harassment or uh, you know pedophilia or any of that stuff. If you're a slave to your urges, um, so you know I think the the biblical condemnation against it's, it's against homosexual practice. It's mm -hmm. not it's not against being against having homosexual urges. So it's not the same thing as being, you know, racist or being, you know, uh, or, you know, it's, it's a two different things, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're black, you're black before you do anything. Um, homosexual, it, it's the homosexual practice. And interestingly enough, in, in, first, in first Timothy, you know, Paul puts... Uh, you know, a, homo, a homosexual practice and clear to say practice in the same category as being a slave trader, you know, in all other kinds of immorality. So, yeah, I have a, I have a big problem with, uh, with you know, I, I think, you know, I, I think about the, the woman caught, caught in adultery mm -hmm. and Jesus, Jesus forgave her. Mm -hmm. And but there's a big difference between that and that woman turning around and saying, "This is the way God wants us to live." Mm -hmm. You know, and, sure. and, and, and and it's when you have somebody like this bishop who is saying, "This is God's will." It, in, a, in a way, it's kind of like being a false prophet. You know, I'm speaking for God. This is what, and 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 she's directly going against what Jesus said. So you know. Saying Jesus is Lord means that you do, you know, and, and she, she, uh, means that you do what Jesus says. Yeah. Can I, let, so let me respond to it. You've said a lot of things, and I'm grateful for all of it, Mr. Lynn. Um, and uh, so just to clarify, um, I don't, I did not intend to say, if I did, I don't think I did, but I did not intend to say or to communicate that Jesus is ambiguity about human, that Jesus is ambiguous about human sexuality. Um, what I would point out is that um, I like so passages like Matthew 19 I think are exactly where we should start with a conversation about about human sexuality and it's notable and to me damning that um, that neither one of the sides in this argument wants to to really bring bring forward a fully biblical or New Testament vision of sexuality which would have to start with the prohibition of divorce which is the main thing Jesus says about sex and the main thing Jesus says about marriage is the prohibition of divorce. And the truth is, the book of discipline is that it's already written right now, already is complacent about divorce. And, and in that sense, has already to me made, um, that doesn't mean we should make further accommodations, but to me has made just an incredibly egregious accommodation to culture and capitulated to culture in a way that we just shouldn't. I think that the prohibition of divorce for any reason except for adultery is just is very clear in the New Testament, and and uh, and we already are complacent in relation to that. And so, I I'm not saying that Jesus is ambiguous, or that the, the Bible doesn't lay out clear teaching about human sexuality. And I even agree that the teaching that what teaching the Bible does offer regarding um, homosexual practice, that the Bible uh, prohibits it. So, we're in agreement on that point, and. Um, the point I'm trying to make is that um, is that we are deeply preoccupied with defending 
um, defending uh, what I view to be rightly conservative language and the discipline about sexuality, but we don't seem to be as deeply preoccupied with dimensions of our Bible that should make us very deeply concerned about things like slavery in our history as well as, as in our present. Um, and I would also say, you know, I think I share some of your reticence about equating race to, um, to sexual practice. Um, but actually one of the reasons I'm uncomfortable with equating race to sexual identity or gender identity or whatever you want to call it, one of the reasons I'm uncomfortable with that is that um, while it might be the case that, that we are born with our sexual preferences or with some particular bent to our sexual prefer preferences and that there's kind of nothing that we could do about that, um, and while it is also true that, that, for example, black people born in the United States can't do anything about their being understood as black, I would, de I would deny that race is a biological phenomenon. Um, so in other words, just to clarify, you know, it may be the case that, um, that, that sexual preference is is it partly or maybe even largely determined by what we could just roughly call biology? And, and if that's the case, that doesn't change what the Bible says about it, right? But it's not the case that race is biologically determined. So hair color is biologically determined, skin pigmentation is biologically determined, et cetera. And we've come to, to categorize certain uh, of those biological um, features in the world as uh, under the heading of race. Um, but the reason we've developed that language is, is because of the history of, of enslaving certain people, to try to justify the practice of enslaving certain people. That's, that's why we developed the language of race. Yes, and I, yeah, I agree, and I'm just, yes, and I think that that is a spurious and dangerous argument, so I would agree, yeah. Thanks for all those thoughts. Who else has got something they want to say? Yeah. Um, I, I have something I want to say about actual racism, but it, this stood out to me, what Lynn just said, like, as the opposite of the spectrum um, of how you say, like, equating racism and um, homosexuality is, like, kind of equivalent human rights, if that's like an overcorrection on this side, I think equating homosexuality with pedophilia and sexual assault is a gross oversimplification of sexual practice because pedophilia and sexual assault are sexual acts with at least one non-consenting adult. And I think to equate those to the practice of homosexuality, which presumably is between consenting adults, does, does the same misstep in understanding the issue of homosexuality as it like is theologically contested as equating it to human rights. So that was just problematic to me because I'm like, yeah, two 19 year olds who are gay is not the same thing as a 40 year old man and a 10 year old child. So I don't think we can address those in the same way. I agree. My, my, my point in saying that is that, that, you know, that we're not a slave to our sexual impulses. I agree, but those are not the same, those aren't the same thing. That, 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 uh, you know, that just because somebody might have a, uh, uh, 
Mr. Lynn, I'm sorry to cut you off, but I do, I, I do want to hear the next thing that Alana had to say. Um, I think I understand what both of you are saying in that. And if you have something to say about that as well, I also want to hear from you in a second. But go ahead. The thing I appreciated most in what you said is when you talked about um, how this idea of trying to work within the system of injustice implies that our authority to preach comes from something other than the resurrection of Jesus, and specifically that it comes from uh, socio-political structures. Mm -hmm. And like with that, how ambivalence gives uh, whichever people groups are being discriminated against, in this case, like specifically blacks and Hispanics in America, it gives them no reason to want to like enter into a substantive worship life with us. Um, I don't know, it just, it just seemed to make so much sense with what Camelia was saying, so I think she talked a lot, oh, she just talked a lot about hospitality and how in the face of like very like present and active and unrepentant racism in America, like the Mexicans they met were extremely hospitable, hospitable to the point of like serving them in their own homes, serving people who were considered the enemy, she said in their homes. And I think like to be hospitable, I think requires a level of compassion. And I think to like care about this requires a little, like to care about the burdens of other people that could easily not affect you or from whom you, the burdens which you could like benefit from in a system like we have in America that's so set up against uh, people who are the victims of economic equality. I think, I don't know, I just really appreciated that because that's been my personal experience. Like usually if I don't wanna be somewhere in a predominantly white setting, it's because I, I feel like, like I don't, I don't know what I'm supposed to invest in, like in, in like an atmosphere of ambivalence. Like I kind of feel like Richard Allen was like, yeah, I just don't trust you to take care of me. So like, mm -hmm. why would I put myself through the vulnerability of like entering into like, like, like metaphorically prostrate worship with you? Like when I don't, I don't know what you're thinking or saying up right behind me or to my face. Mm -hmm. um, and so I don't know. I just really appreciated <coughs> you saying like. Like, we, we just gave those systems the authority to tell us what we can and can't preach about and what we can and can't address. And we've allowed, like, things like the pension system and the Methodist Church to, have to decide, like, what is and isn't worth the risk of, like, challenging people on and what we are and aren't worth. Mm -hmm. Or what we do and don't think is worth losing. Right. For ourselves. Yeah. Thanks for all that. Um, I have a few thoughts about it. One is that um, it just takes a ton of, it takes faith it's very easy. I just want to acknowledge that, and, and I really, I want to be really charitable to all those Methodist preachers that I that I brought up. Uh, you know, all those old school Methodist preachers, like however well or poorly they did in those situations, and however um, however much they like, you know, managed to like retain maintain their nerve or not. Um, I just want to acknowledge that, like, well, first of all, we're all under the grace of God, and so, um, but. Uh, it takes a ton of faith. I mean, to say that there are, it's very easy for me to sit here and say, you know, our, our authority to preach ultimately doesn't come from institutional structures and socioeconomic, you know, um, security, et cetera. It's easy for me to say that, but to, to live that is, um, requires serious sacrifice and therefore requires like really vulnerable faith that God is going to be who God says he is. And, um, and I just, I just want to admit that I'll just speak for myself. Like it's easier said than done, you know, um, that kind of self-sacrifice and believing that God is not going to leave you hanging. Um, and 
sustaining the potentially the, the potential or actual loss of, of the support of those things is tough. One of the reasons it's tough, and one of the reasons I think it requires faith, is because um, you know it costs Methodist preachers FaceTime and community life with the people that they wanted. It costs white Methodists an opportunity to minister to, in some circumstances, the, the very people who um, concern for those people is what animated something like the Methodist address. And so I think that the temptation that ministers can face to compromise isn't just, um, welcome back with your food. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, understandable. Um, it's not just like, oh, I'm not going to have a paycheck, which is a big, that's scary for sure. But it's also, I mean, I'll tell you that besides not wanting to lose my paycheck and not wanting my family to not have health insurance and not wanting to like have my house foreclosed on and all those kinds of things that I am scared of, I also am, am equally likely to compromise in my own setting in ways that I shouldn't because I don't want to lose the opportunity to get to be the director of Wesley. Like, I don't want to lose the chance to get to do this ministry in the place that I get to do it. And it's a fact that um, I could, you know, I, that, that, that being faithful to the gospel could result in that. And um, anyway, that's not the main thing. That may not be the main thing you were saying, Alana, but um, it's something that what you said made me think of. Um, I really appreciate your framing all this in terms of hospitality and welcome. And, and that what we say isn't just you know, whether or not we say what we say shouldn't just be determined by whether or not it's going to, like, have the effect that we want it to, but that sometimes, you know, what we say has to be governed by who the members of the body of Christ are. Like, it pissed some folks off in a real way at Grace when Camellia said that stuff. Um in a real articulate way, it pissed some folks off. And it has definitely pissed some folks off that, that myself and other people have said some of the things that we've said at Race Talks over the years. Um, but the cost of not saying, so the cost of saying that stuff is very obvious. And the people who, you, who are already there who are gonna get mad at you. But the cost that's harder to count is the people that aren't there and the reason they're not there is because nobody's saying that stuff. Um, so, yep. <laughs> you don't have to stand up, but you, I mean, you can. You're welcome well, to. No, I'm Angie. Angie. <laughs> hey. Hey, Angie. Um, so much thank you for everything tonight. Obviously, a lot of work, and I don't. Abigail's going to repeat it all to me when we get back. That's good. My, all she ever talks to me about is. What color my yeah, my yeah, pants are? Yes, ma'am. Yes. Okay, great. Because I'll need to study up. I'm glad I'm not going to be tested. Yeah. You <laughs> don't want to distribute it real widely. No, yeah, go I, ahead. Uh, my mind, there's like a thousand thoughts on my mind. I feel like you covered. Too much? <laughs> I wouldn't to say too much. Sure. <laughs> but I am ADD. So, me no, I mean, a lot of different, a lot of different subjects and a lot yes, of information. Um, uh, the Methodist Church and the division and that is all that's I, I'm not even 
employed by the Methodist Church, certainly a member, and that's stress. It's stressful for me. I know mm-hmm. we were in Portland when the conference was going on, and we were watching it in the lobby of a hotel. And um, when you, I'm just struck, you know, when you say the bishop is appointed, it's openly gay. Mm-hmm. One thing that comes to my mind is, you know, would you rather be closed? You know, I'm not saying one or the other is good or bad. I'm just saying um, we had this situation in our family where um, we had a gay couple that actually got married when it became legal. Mm -hmm. And um, Abigail's grandmother on a Christmas morning um, discovered it. Mm -hmm. It was not told to her, which Mm -hmm. would have been nice. And they're in our family. And we're had, we have a very small family. Almost all of them are dead. So, you know, the six that can gather, mm-hmm. we gather. Right. And it just, and she left in a The, the a grandmother rage. left when she found out? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she left. She left the Christmas morning brunch thing. And it occurred to me at that moment, I wonder if, and I'm old, I'm way old compared to y'all, I'm wondering if I were to say here tonight in front of everyone here or at a Christmas dinner or with any of my friends, Mm -hmm. some of the things that I've done in my life would people want to have a meal with me? Right. And then I'm called thinking that really I think with all the debate and the discussion, I too have said I'm very conservative Christian Mm -hmm. and Southern Baptist at heart. Uh I said if I... um, if our church was to take mm-hmm. a super liberal stance and do a lot of what I'm just going to say, so, you know, oh my gosh, we'd be at a crossroads. You know, mm-hmm. we would, as a family, you know, I've said that also. But then I've also remembered, you know, that within the body of the church, um, there are humans mm-hmm. who are immensely flawed, mm-hmm. you know, sinners saved by grace. and. And then it comes to my mind that we are really called to do just one thing, mm-hmm. and that's the witness. Mm-hmm. I believe you touched on that. Mm-hmm. Try to. Go ahead. Um, <laughs> the part I could hear. <laughs> and um, sorry about my hearing. And that's fine. <laughs> I, um, I don't know. That it was in my morning study or something this morning. I think about are we actually out there? You know. Yeah. We're really just. That's really all we're called to do. Right. Really not to get unbelievable degrees and make a ton of money. That's nice. Or to buy the next big house or to, you know, I hope my child marries a handsome man with a great job and produces me some beautiful grandchildren. Mm -hmm. None of those things really. I mean, I am wanting all those things. (laughs) I don't want to. um, I don't know if Jesse fits up. Yeah, these are some of the things that I, you know, no pressure. But I'm just saying. Really, I mean, he's attractive enough. I think we're missing what we're really called to be. You know, yes. What God really, um, we're really just called to be disciples. Mm-hmm. And everything else, whatever our job is, our vocation, mm-hmm. our, our whatever, wherever our station is, wherever God has put us, it's, you know, are we sharing the gospel mm-hmm. that Jesus did not throw the people scattered? No one could cast a stone. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know. Yeah, I think that's it. I don't know. My thought, I'm sorry, my thoughts are so jumbled. No, it's, it's just. That's it's, what I said. It's a really good word, um, and it's I think incredibly important. And uh, another really faithful way of 
the framing, all this stuff is is exactly like with the witness of the church. And um, Southern Baptist at heart, though you may be, it's, it's also a very, that's a very Methodist way, actually, an old school Methodist way of coming at the question. Um, because early on Methodism was, it wasn't trying to be a denomination. Uh, it was, it was a, well, one of my favorite scholars is called an evangelical order. Um, which, so it was a, essentially like a, <laughs> sort of a Bible study that got out of hand that was all about evangelism and, and evangelism rooted in, in really taking seriously that the way that we live as disciples um, has, makes us salt and light to the earth. And, um, and, I, and I agree that um, both sides of this, uh, of the sexuality debate and of course, um, you know, all sides of division over things like racism would do well to let the conversation be disciplined by the question like, um, how does what we say and what we do and what decisions we make, how, how, how do we let that be governed by the fact that we have no reason to exist except to bear witness to the gospel? Yeah. Um, and I think, we yeah. Human, I mean. Sure. Yeah, on our own humanity, I mean, you're exactly right. Like, our, our brokenness, right. which, which is what you started off talking about, is admitting our brokenness is a key part of that. Um, and speaking in ways that... Um, that doesn't mean that we can't talk about what counts as sin and what doesn't count as sin, right? Admitting that we're broken doesn't mean that we can't make judgments about that. But... Um, doing that from a posture of humility that admits brokenness and that, that I'm a sinner in need, of, in need of God's grace and I remain a sinner in need of God's grace, like that just is going to result in a more faithful witness to the gospel um, than the delusion that we're all tempted to that, um, that our sin is somehow less ugly than um, other folks' sin who we're interested in investigating and condemning. So thanks for sharing all that stuff. I appreciate it. <clears throat> Any other thoughts? You know, right now I'm attending a conservative church. Mm -hmm. I'm, I think, going to life church. Okay. You know, which is uh, not very far away from me. Mm -hmm. My next door neighbor is uh, African American. Mm -hmm. And I go to his Sunday school class. At life church? Yeah, I can, I, I mean, uh, like one of the many 
talks I'd like to write at some point or papers or something would be something along the lines of like why you don't have to be something like why you don't have to be a liberal to you know be against racism or something so I mean I, I certainly don't think there's anything intrinsic to um, a biblically conservative um, a truly biblically conservative conviction that that it all engenders racism and if anything part of the point of what I'm saying tonight is that true biblical conservatism actually has the ability to, to po very potently undermine racism um, because, among other things, it undermines um, the economic inequality that really is the driver of racism. One thing that's been important to me, I will say as a white guy, over the last four years, learning how to talk about this stuff, is listening to my black and brown brothers and sisters explain to me um, how much more difficult yeah, help me recognize difficulties that they endure in in settings that uh, I might not. They might not be difficult for me. Um, so I totally hear what you're saying regarding like uh, the way the Methodists have like we somehow you know we 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 swallow a camel and like strain out a gnat when it comes to some of these things. Um, and maybe we don't have to try that hard, actually, uh, in certain ways. I, I think, in general, I would agree with that. On the other hand, I would say that um, I wonder uh, what some of your your black and brown brothers and sisters at that church, what, how their experience would compare as regards how easy or difficult it is. Kalila? Yeah, I've gone to that church. And oh, yeah. Appreciate sharing that. Yep. Um, really, you know, I come from a Baptist background, so mm -hmm. I didn't really Most y'all do. Too much integration. I sort of, I, I sort of do too, actually. Don't tell anyone. Go ahead. You come from a Baptist background. Go ahead. Yeah, what do you want to speak to? I experienced too much integration in my church. I mean, it's not that we didn't mind white people. We literally, like, would, I would invite my friends, white and black, to just come to church because most of the time they either at home or they're not doing that. But they wouldn't come because it's out in the country. You know? mm -hmm. <laughs> Do I still look at that? Um, 
place, that's where I really truly experienced integration and also the fact that there was different ways of how y'all worship, mm-hmm. which also helped me grow as a Christian mm-hmm. besides how I've always been taught. Mm-hmm. Sweet. And another thing I would like to uh, say is that I do, I'm listening to you and I can't help but appreciate the fact that you went out of your way against well I would say like the government or a whole nation about speaking on race and I highly appreciate that because not many preachers other than black folks <laughs> talk about that especially white preachers you say go ahead Ma'am? I want to make sure I understood what you said I'm sorry Keep going. But yeah, I mean, I, I plan on coming to future race talks like for the next three times, but still ain't no tell. So I want to say it now. Yeah, thanks for I saying it. I appreciate it. And that's it. Yeah, thank you for sharing all that. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Did you have a question? I thought. No, I, I think I understood. I yeah. Thank okay. You. Becca Peck, what did you want to say to us? I'm pretty sure you got something to say, Becca Beck. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <clears throat> All right, any other, any other thoughts or comments? Any, any questions? I think anything that was like exceptionally unclear or, or a little unclear that you'd like clarity on? Yes? and it's a really difficult one to answer um, in any kind of satisfactory way. Um, I think most of the answers that are satisfying um, or that, that don't seem to be like, I don't know, kind of squirrely in some way are, they tend to be pretty local. Um, um, and I do think that they tend to be missional and like, like focused on mission, missionary hopes um, and focus on actions to a degree rather than resolving doctrinal disputes. Um, and it's probably easier to give examples than it is to, to offer a theory, I guess. The truth is that um, any pursuit of unity, well, the pursuit of unity is both ob- obligatory for Christians, um, but also just by virtue of the situation we find ourselves in, in a divided church, um, which is where we are even if the Methodist church doesn't split over sex. Um, We've been split for, well, if you want to start at like 1054, we've been split for, you know, over a thousand years. Um, Not to mention, you know, then the Protestant Reformation, et cetera. And since the Protestant Reformation, we just continue to split. Um, And that's really the the ethos of Protestantism is an ongoing division. Um, So... That's not okay. It's a sin, in fact. 
Um, and every, every Christian arguably is living in sin insofar as we all begin our questions about unity sort of assuming disunity. But um, that doesn't get us off the hook either for, for doing what we can where we are. And so, um, I mean, we met, we had a meeting with uh, the United Campus Ministries the other day, allegedly United Campus Ministries. Uh, and one of the things that we proposed was that at, that at some point we just talk about um, race talks being a thing that, that all the campus ministries share together as a shared ministry. So I'm not making any promises about whether or not that will happen, but I think even an effort to, you know, I mean, I have, I'm sure, substantial doctrinal disagreements with some of the people sitting around that table. Um, and I'm sure we have plenty of methodological disagreements about how ministry ought to be done. But at the end of the day, uh, I just think this thing we're talking about, for example, is too important and for, for, for them not to be getting in on the action. And, um, and I also think it's a thing that I can, I don't think I can sell the Baptists, for example, since we've all kind of confessed our, our Baptist history here, um, myself included for the record. Um, I, had, I went to a Baptist youth group in West Monroe growing up. Um, but um, I don't think I can convince the Baptist of the sacramental theology that we assume when we celebrate the Eucharist on Tuesday or Friday. I don't think we're gonna get anywhere, probably, with that argument. Um, I think that there's right answers on either side. I don't, I don't think that, what I'm not saying is I think that we're both right. I think that I'm right, okay? But uh, just practically speaking, I don't think we're gonna get anywhere with that, probably, in our UCM meetings. But I do think I could, believe it or not, I think I could probably pitch race talks to the Baptists. Because I think if nothing else, they care about whether, they, they do care. The BCM, I think, cares about whether or not there's black and brown folks in their ministry or not, if, you know, if nothing else. And so, yeah, I think those kinds of efforts, I mean, and they, I, th I do think they tend to be pretty dramatically bracketed. Um, so, does that answer the question at all? Yeah. But it's a, it's a moving target, I think, at best, to, yeah, to talk about unity. There's other, I mean, adoration, you went to adoration, and I mean, so there are, there are places in worship where I've seen Christians gather together in real vibrant forms, and not just adoration, there's a place called Tizé in France that's a sort of pilgrimage site of where not, not only a bunch of different kinds of Protestants worship together, but also Catholics and Orthodox even. So, yeah, there's different forms of witness to the unity of the church. But I think, I, I kind of want them all to, what I, what I can't stomach is, uh, is the pretense of unity where there isn't any. I, I think we really have to be modest about what kind of unity does and doesn't exist. Because actually our doctrinal differences do matter, for example. Um, and... Um, so I was talking to some of the, the Wesley diaspora at, at Duke the other day, and uh, they were expressing to me that they were having a tough time with the, the worship services that are happening at the Divinity School that week, which are like, they, they declared like a week of unity um, at this Methodist seminary. <laughs> um, and so, anyway, one of the students up there that used to go to Wesley was like, am I just being a jerk to like be kind of uh, having a tough time, like, swallowing, you know, that, like, 
we're going to celebrate unity right now in a, in a seminary that is like palpably divided in a church that's palpably divided and is about to rip itself apart, you know, like on the brink of the ruin of the denomination, we're going to be like, <laughs> unity. Um, Let's just take our way through. Right. And I was, yeah, exactly. I was like, I know, I mean, it's totally understandable that you're annoyed. I mean, we may as well be like, let's pretend that we're dragons and unicorns. Um, I just, so yeah, I can't, that kind of crap is, if we're going to pursue unity, let's let it be substantive, even if it's very modest. You know what I mean? Um, so, yeah. You know, I don't see much difference in the liberal Methodist church that's been proposed in a Unitarian church. So I think maybe they, you know, when they, you know, when, they, when the division happens, maybe they should merge with the Unitarian church and call themselves a Unitarian Methodist church. I think that... Um, I am sympathetic to uh, an aspect of what you're saying when you say that. Um, insofar as, and I, and I will, so just try to be charitable to what you're saying, like, one of the things I worry about and people who, who become, who I've watched go from, you know, having like a conservative stance on sexuality to having a liberal stance on sexuality is that um, they do seem like they're somewhere on a, on a slippery slope, on a slide toward just like pluralism or universalism or whatever you want to call it. So I think that, um, I think there is a danger. And that's one of the things that I take very seriously about um, that, that move. Um, I, I don't know that it's, I wouldn't want to say that it's absolutely necessary because I've also known some Christians who had some pretty, who didn't quite fit into the affirming or disaffirming stance but who were very unambiguously not universalists and not Unitarians and not, you know, pluralists um, that really were able to maintain some serious truth claims. And so, I mean, those are really minority cases and they all, you know, but I, I, the thing I don't, that I wouldn't agree with, with what you just said is that um, it, the, the institution that's going to be left after the split that, that still fits under the heading, the United Methodist Church, um, it does include some fringe left people who I think it's probably right to call essentially Unitarians in practice. But there are, in reality, and I don't know what the numbers are, but I'm just telling you from experience of people that I know, c clergy that I know, either are or are not going to stick with the UMC. There's a lot of Orthodox clergy that are, that are going to stick with the UMC, people that um, for example, and, and again, I don't think this is a test case of orthodoxy, but if you want to make this the test case of orthodoxy, these are people that they're not about to perform a gay marriage ceremony, and they don't take issue with the language in the Book of Discipline as it is right now. Um, but they also, and so, you know, if that's a test of orthodoxy, they're orthodox Methodists, and they are not at all universalists or Unitarians, and, um, no. and, and those people aren't there's going to be a lot of those folks. That that's the truth. Is that there is still going to be a lot of those folks left in the United Methodist Church after the split. So, I don't know what it's going to look like ten or twelve or fifteen years from now. But I think predictions about that institution becoming essentially Unitarian. I think that's inaccurate. Just, just I'm just telling you based off of the folks I know that are still going to be left in there. Yeah, there's a few different ways it could shake out, but that, that's roughly the case. So, I mean, basically, 
in May, the general conference will meet and vote on the protocol or some version of the protocol. Everyone expects that the protocol is going to pass or some version of it is going to pass. Um, at that point, what happens immediately after that is a little unclear to me, but, but what will happen sometime within the next year or two, maybe as early as June, is that each annual conference, so for those of you that don't know Methodist, boring stuff, like Louisiana is an annual conference, right? Um, Every annual conference will, I can't remember what the percentage is. I think you have to get 20% of people have to want to take the vote and then 50, 57% of the conference has to vote to, so there'll be a vote as to whether or not the conference itself wants to leave the United Methodist Church um, and, and either form a new denomination or align with the nascent traditionalist denomination. Um, it's predicted that Louisiana Conference will not have the votes to exit the conference at which point, I mean, no matter what happens, whether the conference sticks with the UMC or whether the conference leaves, every local church will have the option to either stay with the Methodist church or go with the traditionalists at that point and take their property with them. And I think, you know, that's either by a majority vote or whatever it is. So Wesley Foundation, per usual, is in this kind of like liminal space where um, there's no clear answer, at least at this point, as to what happens to ministries like ours after the split, but you need not worry about that yet. Or really, ever, because um, we're not supposed to worry. But it, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, something's going to happen in May, and then something is going to happen in June. But it may or may not be. After that, then there's just kind of like four-year period where things are going to continue to be shaken out in a variety of ways. And the truth is, things people are already leaving the church uh, and, and have been for a while. And church is already leaving the conference, so um, we'll see. See what happens. All right, going once. You got one? You just want to leave? Sounds good. All right, let me say a brief prayer for us, and then we will call it a night. Oh God, thank you for the generous gift of your Holy Spirit um, given to us and our gathering and um, especially in our gathering around the table where we receive the gifts of your body and blood. Um, let us be fed in every sense of, uh, of the word um, by the gift of yourself and May our meal and our encounter of you and one another and, and may your word that we hear spoken to us in that gathering truly take root in our hearts um, and may it shape the way that we treat one another. Grant us the gift of freedom from, from pride and self-deception. Grant us the gift of humility and a share of your own love for this world. Um, and most of all, Lord, give us faith to trust you and um, in our trusting you, help us to find your promises to us proved true. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.